Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Winston Churchill, The Few, delivered in the House of Commons, Westminster, on August 20th, 1940. Part 2. Rather more than a quarter of a year has passed since the new government came into power in this country. What a cataract of disaster has poured out upon us since then. The trustful Dutch overwhelmed. Their beloved and respected sovereign driven into exile. The peaceful city of Rotterdam, the scene of a massacre as hideous and brutal as anything in the Thirty Years' War. Belgium invaded and beaten down. Our own fine expeditionary force, which King Leopold called to his rescue, cut off and almost captured, escaping as it seemed only by a miracle and with the loss of all its equipment. Our ally, France, out. Italy in against us. All France in the power of the enemy all its arsenals and vast masses of military material converted or convertible to the enemy's use, a puppet government set up at Vichy, which may at any moment be forced to become our foe, the whole western seaboard of Europe, from the North Cape to the Spanish frontier in German hands, all the ports, all the airfields on this immense front employed against us as potential springboards of invasion. Moreover, the German air power, numerically so far outstripping ours, has been brought so close to our island that what we used to dread greatly has come to pass, and the hostile bombers not only reach our shores in a few minutes and from many directions, but can be escorted by their fighting aircraft. Why, sir, if we had been confronted at the beginning of May with such a prospect, it would have seemed incredible that at the end of a period of horror and disaster, or at this point in a period of horror and disaster, we should stand erect, sure of ourselves, masters of our fate, and with the conviction of final victory burning unquenchable in our hearts. Few would have believed we could survive, None would have believed that we should today not only feel stronger, but should actually be stronger than we have ever been before. Let us see what has happened on the other side of the scales. The British nation and the British Empire, finding themselves alone, stood undismayed against disaster. No one flinched or wavered. Nay, some who formerly thought of peace now think only of war. Our people are united and resolved as they have never been before. Death and ruin have become small things compared with the shame of defeat or failure in duty. We cannot tell what lies ahead. It may be that even greater ordeals lie before us. We shall face whatever is coming to us. We are sure of ourselves and of our cause, and that is the supreme fact which has emerged in these months of trial. Meanwhile, 
we have not only fortified our hearts, but our island. We have rearmed and rebuilt our armies in a degree which would have been deemed impossible a few months ago. We have ferried across the Atlantic in the month of July, thanks to our friends over there, an immense mass of munitions of all kinds, cannon, rifles, machine guns, cartridges and shell, all safely landed without the loss of a gun or a round. The output of our own factories, working as they have never worked before, has poured forth to the troops. The whole British army is at home. More than two million determined men have rifles and bayonets in their hands tonight, and three-quarters of them are in regular military formations. We have never had armies like this in our island in time of war. The whole island bristles against invaders, from the sea or from the air. As I explained to the house in the middle of June, the stronger our army at home, the larger must the invading expedition be. And the larger the invading expedition, the less difficult will be the task of the navy in detecting its assembly, and in intercepting and destroying it in passage. And the greater also would be the difficulty of feeding and supplying the invaders if ever they landed, in the teeth of continuous naval and air attack on their communications. All this is classical and venerable doctrine. As in Nelson's day, the maxim holds, our first line of defense is the enemy's ports. Now air reconnaissance and photography have brought to an old principle a new and potent aid. Our Navy is far stronger than it was at the beginning of the war. The great flow of new construction set on foot at the outbreak is now beginning to come in. We hope our friends across the ocean will send us a timely reinforcement to bridge the gap between the peace flotillas of 1939 and the war flotillas of 1941. There is no difficulty in sending such aid. The seas and oceans are open. The U-boats are contained. The magnetic mine is, up to the present time, effectively mastered. The merchant tonnage under the British flag, after a year of unlimited U-boat war, after eight months of intensive mining attack, is larger than when we began. We have, in addition, under our control, at least four million tons of shipping from the captive countries which has taken refuge here or in the harbors of the empire. Our stocks of food of all kinds are far more abundant than in the days of peace, and a large and growing program of food production is on foot. Why do I say all this? Not assuredly to boast. Not assuredly to give the slightest countenance to complacency. The dangers we face are still enormous, but so are our advantages and resources. I recount them because the people have a right to know that there are solid grounds for the confidence which we feel, and that we have good reason to believe ourselves capable, as I said in a very dark hour two months ago, of continuing the war, if necessary alone, if necessary for years. I say it also because the fact that the British Empire stands invincible, and that Nazidom is still being resisted, will kindle again the spark of hope 
in the breasts of hundreds of millions of downtrodden or despairing men and women throughout Europe and far beyond its bounds, and that from these sparks there will presently come cleansing and devouring flame. The great air battle, which has been in progress over this island for the last few weeks, has recently attained a high intensity. It is too soon to attempt to assign limits either to its scale or to its duration. We must certainly expect that greater efforts will be made by the enemy than any he has so far put forth. Hostile air fields are still being developed in France and the Low Countries, and the movement of squadrons and material for attacking us is still proceeding. It is quite plain that Herr Hitler could not admit defeat in his air attack on Great Britain without sustaining most serious injury. If after all his boastings and blood-curdling threats and lurid accounts trumpeted round the world of the damage he has inflicted, of the vast numbers of our air force he has shot down, so he says, with so little loss to himself. If after tales of the panic-stricken British crushed in their holes, cursing the plutocratic parliament which has led them to such a plight, if after all this his whole air onslaught were forced, after a while tamely, to peter out. The Führer's reputation for veracity of statement might be seriously impugned. We may be sure, therefore, that he will continue as long as he has the strength to do so, and as long as any preoccupations he may have in respect of the Russian Air Force allow him to do so. On the other hand, the conditions and course of the fighting have so far been favorable to us. I told the House two months ago that, whereas in France our fighter aircraft were wont to inflict a loss of two or three to one upon the Germans, and in the fighting at Dunkirk, which was a kind of no-man's land, a loss of about three or four to one. We expected that in an attack on this island we should achieve a larger ratio. This has certainly come true. It must also be remembered that all the enemy machines and pilots which are shot down over our island, or over the seas which surround it, are either destroyed or captured, whereas a considerable proportion of our machines, and also of our pilots, are saved, and soon again in many cases come into action. A vast and admirable system of salvage, directed by the Ministry of Aircraft Production, ensures the speediest return to the fighting line of damaged machines, and the most provident and speedy use of all the spare parts and material. At the same time, the splendid, nay, astounding increase in the output and repair of British aircraft and engines, which Lord Beaverbrook has achieved by a genius of organization and drive, which looks like magic, has given us overflowing reserves of every type of aircraft, and an ever-mounting stream of production, both in quantity and quality. The enemy is, of course, far more numerous than we are. But our new production already, as I am advised, largely exceeds his. And the American production is only just beginning to flow in. It is a fact, 
as I see from my daily returns, that our bomber and fighter strength now, after all this fighting, are larger than they have ever been. We believe that we shall be able to continue the air struggle indefinitely, and as long as the enemy pleases. And the longer it continues, the more rapid will be our approach. First, towards that parity, and then into that superiority in the air, upon which in a large measure the decision of the war depends. The gratitude of every home in our island, in our empire, and indeed throughout the world, except in the abodes of the guilty, goes out to the British airmen who, undaunted by odds, unwearied in their constant challenge and mortal danger, are turning the tide of the world war by their prowess and by their devotion. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>